Uh, sure hope you're doing well. Uh, I got to tell you something funny. So first service, um, you know, Matt was doing his senior thing and uh, he, uh, he said in the service, he said, hey, would all of you seniors please stand? And so we had some students stand and one old lady like in her 80s in the back stood up. So I don't know if she got a picture made or not, but uh, if you call yourself a senior, get your picture made. That'd be fantastic. That'd be great. So uh, Lord, thank you so much for these good folks, the high honor of being able to share with them today. And I do pray, Father, that you would uh, hide them in your cross. Um, they didn't come here to hear from, from a person. We all came because we want to meet you, want to, want to hear from you, and, and kind of want to hear what you have to say about our lives and what you, want to have, what you have to say about who we are as people and, and what you want us to do while we're here on this planet. So, Lord, um, I do ask that you would meet with us, uh, meet with whatever need we bring in, uh, whatever thing comes to the forefront of everybody's mind when we talk about that, meet that need, I pray. And when we leave this place, drive down the hill, may we know that, man, God is doing something here and, uh, in, in, in me. In your name we pray. Amen. I've been doing this series um, called Demo Day, and the basic idea of Demo Day is, is this. We all build our lives on certain things. We have foundational elements that we all build this life on, and so like there are things of maybe morality or family or or ideals, or finances, whatever. We build our lives on these things. But that's not a complete process. So like as life grows, as we grow, those things change in our lives. And so uh, we find ourselves having to address those changes and maybe change some things. So everybody has these times in life when what we built our lives on isn't necessarily working. So like we may, like in our you know, early life, may say, well, you know what, I'm just an angry person. Everybody's got to deal with that. But then we have kids and we realize, well, that's no longer maybe acceptable. Or, um, you know, we may think, well, I want to make a whole lot of money with my life. And then you realize that your priorities might change. And so things change. Or, or maybe like you have a time, like clarifying times, like, um, you know, times of loss and grief. Or maybe there's some times of, of, of disease or marital stress or relational stress or heartache. Or maybe a kid rebels or something like that. And all these things happen and they help us evaluate the things we built our lives on. And we find ourselves sort of needing to go through some, if you will, soul renovation. And so we ask ourselves in those soul-searching seasons, what areas of my life, what foundational areas do I need to renovate? And some of you are actually in church now because you went through a season where you said, you know what? We need to get our rear ends back in church. You know, we need to be back in, in church. And that's how come you're here. You went through some kind of soul renovation. And so maybe, maybe the one way you would say it is this. I need a renovation in some areas of my life, so what do I need to demo? And that's because this is the big idea for this series, that demolition always precedes renovation. If you're not into construction, say it this way. Deconstruction always has to precede reconstruction. And so, you know, when you think about trying to like, reevaluate or re- re- change the trajectory of one's life, that will involve some demolition. And when we do go through this period of demolition, everything's on the table. And it's not always a great thing. So when I was uh, post, after high school, before I went to college, I worked for a number of years before I went on to college. And um, we worked in our family business, which involved a lot of construction stuff. Uh, my dad ran the business, and I basically worked with, along with some other crews, and we did the deal. So one particular project we had was um, a person had a crawl space. If you're not familiar with the term, houses are built on like a slab, a basement, or a crawl space. And a crawl space is like two to three blocks of, of, of cinder block usually, and then like the, the floor is set on those cinder blocks, and the, and the floor is dirt. Everybody familiar with what I'm saying so far? 
So this was like a crawl space. Now what had happened is the homeowner didn't like their floor joist and the insulation being exposed. So they had someone like um, nail up what's called Celotex board or plywood pieces on their floor joist. What that does is it had created some moisture problems in their, on their floor. So like the floor joists were getting moldy and the insulation was wet and all that kind of stuff. So our job was to go into the crawl space and remove those four by eight sheets of plywood. The problem, then that's fine. The problem was that it, the crawl space went from like two feet on one end and as they're prone to do and like, you know, you know three inches on the other end. And so here's what we did. Uh, I got, we got in there with a hammer, my, my buddy got in there with a hammer, and we would lay under these four by eight sheets, and we would just pull out the nails as much as we could, and we'd pull the board down, shove it down our bodies, and then kick it with our feet toward the door, and eventually we'd work it out. Everybody with me? This is, this is when I felt God's call to ministry, by the way. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> so everything was going fine, but then we were working our way back up. We're in the crawl space, laying on our backs, and, and no kidding, it is, my forehead is on the bottom of the floor joist. I mean, there is no movement at all. So we're taking the hammer and like, you know, doing this and that here, and we're pulling the nails out, and we pull it down, and my friend makes a sound I have yet to hear ever be, again. It's kind of like, <laughs> and then he's out of the crawl space. And I'm laying there with this four by eight piece of wet plywood on top of me, my head at the floor joist, and I look and notice he's gone, and I look where he was, and there's like a seven foot black snake that had curled up right there at the end of the plywood. And what had happened was this huge snake, when he pulled the board down, had crawled across his chest and curled up beside him. My buddy used to have a beard, and I say used to because when he went outside, he was trying to light a cigarette, and he put his whole beard on fire, but it's okay. I did stop, drop, and roll. He was fine, but I mean, the beard was gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The reason I told you that story that I wanted to kind of pass on with you is that this. When we go through some kind of soul demolition process that I'm actually encouraging you to go on... Sometimes what you reveal will be scary and something you'd rather not deal with. We may have a whole lot of hidden things that we would rather not discover when we go through this process. That's a perfectly natural response. It can be painful. Sometimes it's really scary stuff that we'll deal with. And the story I want to share with you today, some really scary stuff was revealed. And Jesus was the one who had his hand on the, on, on, the, on the steering wheel of the whole process. The story's told in Luke chapter 10. So one day there's this expert in religious law, and he stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is one of those times, if you're going to study scripture, looking at the words of this verse will tell you everything you need to know about the verse, because there's some major words that stand out here that wouldn't necessarily be normal. The religious lawyer isn't asking to learn something from Jesus. He's not asking for Jesus to give him some kind of aha insight into his life. He's actually asking to test, everybody, T-E-S-T. So test. So he's asking to test Jesus. Right, okay, I'll try to be a little clearer. And so he's trying to, he's trying to test Jesus. That's his motivation. He, he's not trying to learn something. He basically wants to put Jesus on a trial, 
The other thing I want you to notice is how common the question he's asking is, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Because that's a question that I get, and it's a question that you get maybe. I think an alarm? Yeah. Oh, okay. Is, is it over? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so uh, it's, it's, it's a question of um, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Well, that's something that everybody asks. It's one of the reasons some of you are believers. That's why some of you are in the room, because you want to make sure when you leave this place or whatever's next, you're ready for it. Fair? But what's weird is the way this particular dude asked it, because of that word. You don't have to say it this time. But because of the inherent word, because there, the guy's almost like he's saying, hey, how can I make sure that I finish well, and then how can I make sure that as a, when I get to heaven or go in with God, I get what I really deserve, my full reward. So like he's a religious lawyer, so he keeps over 600 different laws, and he teaches other people how to, how to, how to live for God. He does all that, and so he's telling the crowd in front of the crowd, how do I make sure I inherit everything that God has for me? Of course, that's the wrong question, but Jesus revealed that to him. So Jesus revealed what does the law of Moses say, and how do you read it? Now, what's happening here is Jesus is sort of stroking the guy's ego. So, like, the guy's a religious lawyer. He knows the law of Moses forward and backward. He knows, he's been studying it for years, and he teaches on it. And so he says to Jesus, says to the guy, well, I don't know, what does the law say? You tell me. And so the guy puffs up his chest. He's amazing how brilliant he is. He wants everybody to know. And then he says this. Well, the law says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the religious lawyer has just quoted something called the Shema. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. And just for a comparison, this question was a softball. This question, Jesus just lobbed it up there, and it was easy. It would be like me saying or us saying to our children, who, what was the name of the guy who died on the cross? It was, it was that simple as far as what he was telling the, or, or what he was saying. So Jesus says, that's exactly right. Do this and you will live. The problem is this guy's a religious expert. And he stood up and Jesus threw this softball. And he said like, he, he did said something like a school kid would know. And so he's kind of embarrassed. He's like, well, you know, that didn't turn out the way I exactly wanted this. And so the man tries to kind of cover himself by doing a follow-up question. And this is what he said. The man wanted to justify, appears being right, or to be made right, his actions. In other words, asking Jesus a dumb question and having an obvious answer. So he said to Jesus, ah, but who is my neighbor? Now, I'll be honest with you, the thing that gets me here is he jumps right over the, all the God stuff. He doesn't ask, how do I make sure I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? That's what I would want to know. Neighbors, y'all are on your own. I want to make sure that me and God are right. Does that make sense? It's like, how do I make sure me and God are going to be in good stead? He doesn't ask that at all. He goes right to, well, who's my neighbor? Which is crazy to me. And the reason is because this particular lawyer assumes he and God are perfect because he keeps 600 laws. So, of course, God likes him. He's the religious expert. 
what the lawyer really needs from Jesus is a real small, narrow definition of what a neighbor is. Kind of like we will. He's hoping what I hope and maybe you hope, and that is that our neighbor will only include friends and family members we like. That's who the neighbor is. See, when we go through this renovation of our inner lives, our interior worlds, and we start pulling down things and looking at things and examining things, and we discover some scary stuff that maybe we'd rather not deal with, like this sense of being self-righteous or some righteous superiority like this guy's going through. And his demo that's happening in his life reveals a bunch of bad things. First, he's got a low view of God's law. He doesn't even ask about God. He says, oh, I've got that nailed down. I'm following all the laws I need to. I'm perfectly loving God. He's got a low view of himself because his understanding of himself and God is he has to keep all these laws perfectly, and if he doesn't, then he's going to be toast. Then he's got a low view of other people. Jesus, how much, who really is the neighbor, and how much do I have to love them to actually pass? And Jesus never answers the guy's question. Instead, what he does is he tells a story. And I think he tells, this is probably the most, second most popular story Jesus ever told, with the first one being probably the prodigal son. Jesus says this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, the crowd at this point would say, that makes perfect sense. Because this was a stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Nobody traveled alone. It was something that you always went in a huge group because people were always getting beat up on that particular part or particular road. Like you might have a place in your neighborhood that you don't go there at night because you might get beat up or maybe you went there at night to beat people up, whatever issues you got. So, you know, we don't go to that place at night. Well, that's what this place is. That's what this place is. So everybody was with them. By chance, Jesus says, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Then a temple assistant walked over and looked at the dude lying there in the ditch, but he also passed by to the other side. Now this is surprising the crowd. This is a big deal. So the priest went, certainly the priest is going to help, but then, well, maybe the priest had something to do. So then they have a, the temple assistant. They're like religious. Certainly those religious people are going to help, but they don't. And so everyone's kind of like, well, where's this story going to go? Then Jesus drops the bomb. Then he says, a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man in the ditch, he felt compassion for him. So... I want you to think of racism at its worst point. And we've got a lot of examples in history of racism. We've got the Holocaust. We have the black-white situation. We even have right now, even the area, it's not really racism, but we think of terrorism. Whatever those kinds of things, think of racism at its worst, run amok, and that's what was happening between these two races, Jewish people and Samaritan people. The Samaritan would be the last person any Jew or any Samaritan would expect to stop and actually help. 
But there was one thing that set the Samaritan apart from the other two people that went by the guy lying in the ditch, and it was this. He had compassion for him. So the other two guys, they came along. They see him. It's not like they missed him, but they actually saw him, looked, and says, oh, sucks to be you. And then they went on by and went on another way. Not this dude. He saw the guy lying in the ditch, had compassion. And this is what I think the Bible means by compassion. Compassion is when someone's pain, someone else's pain, moves from my head to my heart so greatly that I have to do something with my hands. And that's what, that's what was going on in this story. The Samaritan cares for the man's wounds. He bandages him up, takes, him, takes time out of his journey, puts him up in a Motel 6, and they, he pays for the time there until the guy can heal up. But now, Jesus has just revealed something scary that he'd rather not deal with. The black snake has just crawled out from on top of the piece of plywood and was circled right there. He's revealed something scary that he'd rather not deal with in the heart of this religious leader, but probably in the heart of everybody listening, and I would suggest even in the hearts of everybody listening here in this room. And here's what it was. Everybody has somebody we would most likely leave in the ditch. Isn't that convicting? I hope that was offensive to you because you should say, no, I don't. And I understand that. I do. I do. But the truth be told, even though I like to think if I see someone laying in the ditch, I'm probably going to help them. I'm not going to walk over and say, oh, you're one of those. But the truth be told, in my dialogue, in my conversation, in my attitudes, and in my perceptions, there are some recurring things. Certain people, certain ideas, certain political persuasions, and you're like, nah, nah, nah. So once the story's been told, Jesus turns to the religious leader who asks the question, and Jesus says to the man, so let me tell you, Mr. Religious Expert Lawyer Dude, which of these three is the neighbor to the man that was in the ditch? And the man who sought to put Jesus in a place of awkwardness in front of the crowd now finds him that he has been placed in a place of awkwardness in front of the crowd. Because this religious lawyer had taught, had followed the rule, had followed the laws that said, don't mess with the Samaritans as Jewish people. Don't touch them. Don't associate with them. Don't do business with them. They're unclean. Don't be part of their lives. This religious expert had taught that. And Jesus has just exposed that heart. Which one of these dudes was the neighbor? And the man says, look how he says it. The one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan. He couldn't even say the good Samaritan. It was so deeply ingrained for him to hate So let me ask you in this story. This is kind of review I'm imagining. Who do you identify with in this story? Anybody else, when they read the story, think, well, I'm probably the good Samaritan. Would you raise your hand if you say, that's the one I kind of primarily identify with? Everybody's, okay, yeah, me too. So that's kind of, I, I like to think I'd be the good Samaritan. How many of you say, well, I'm probably the priest that walked by? No, you know, maybe we probably don't. That's probably not us. How many of you all think you're Jesus? Because you're not, and you should know that. I mean, that's kind of, you need to know that. That's someone else. It's already taken. 
See, I think the story is revealing something scary that the modern church would rather not deal with. Dare I say that maybe even alive would rather not deal with. I think there's an attitude that's revealed of religious superiority in this story. And so some of what happens often characterizes religious people today. Maybe if you're here and you don't believe, you're here with a friend or whatever, and you would say, yeah, Tom, this is the first thing you've said I agree with. Because we sort of have this air about us that we're better than whoever. Well, you know, we've got our kids in church, we're in church, we serve, we give back, so therefore we're obviously better than the rest of y'all's, you know, ditch, ditch dwellers. So i got to I've got an illustration I want to share with you from a strange source. It's a Buddhist parable. So just send an email. So there's this Buddhist parable that says one day the Buddha was sitting under a tree. And this young, trim, fit soldier walked by, looked at the Buddha, noticed his fat, and said, you look like a pig. The Buddha looked up calmly at the soldier and he says, ah, and you look like God. Well, the fit young soldier was kind of taken aback by that response, and he says, why do you say that I look like God? And the Buddha replied, well, we don't really ever see what's outside of ourselves. We see what is inside and project it out. I sit under this tree all day, and I think about God, so that when I look out, that is what I see. And you you must be thinking about other things. (laughs) There's an axiom in philosophy that says this, the way that we perceive and judge is deeply influenced and colored by our own interiority. How we perceive others speaks volumes about what is actually going on inside of us. Do you see? Here's, here's what I told the second service. I didn't tell the first service, and I probably shouldn't tell you, but I'm going to. Go on Facebook and see if you can see the interiority of people's lives. <laughs> don't say it if you do, just to let you know. Don't, don't post, you know, oh, this is what's happening with you. Don't do that. Don't do that. That'll start problems. But how we speak about other people, how we speak about society in general, how we speak about our friend group or lack of friend group, how we speak about our families, all is more revealing about what's actually going on inside of us. And for some of us, to follow that pathway reveals something scary and something we would rather not deal with. What Jesus was trying to get the religious leader to see, and perhaps all of us to see, is this. The core DNA piece for those of us who believe is we are the man in the ditch. That's who we relate to in this story first and foremost. As believers, when I was first starting to understand uh, what Christianity was all about, I had no problems coming into a place like this and saying, I'm the dude in the ditch. 
I would have never thought that I was the dude, that when I was Jesus, that I was the dude that was going to be religious or the dude that helped. I was the dude in the ditch. In fact, I would come into a room like this, hear somebody speak, and I would be beaten to a pulp because of stupid decisions I made or maybe stupid decisions someone else made that impacted me, and I would feel beaten up, laying alongside the road. I knew I needed help, and I knew I needed saving. That is a key piece of the interior life for everybody who believes. Let me say it again because your interior life, the core building block is you one time dwelled in the ditch. You did. You, You dwelled there. And that's key. When we were helpless, Christ died for us and he pulled us out of the ditch and he paid for our recovery with his blood. And once we see ourselves as the one in the ditch who has been rescued by the Savior, we can finally begin to see others in the same way. What my concern is for the modern church, for people that have been churched for a long time, is we forget we used to live in the ditch. And so I used to live in the ditch, and I had no trouble remembering it. I gave my heart to Jesus. I got my heart right with God. I started hanging out in church with church people, and I started singing the songs, and I started knowing where the Bible verses were. I even got a Bible. I started taking notes during the message, and I really got saved, and I put a fish on my car, and I did all these wonderful, wonderful things. And then, and then, I forgot that I used to be in the ditch. And instead of looking at people dwelling in the ditch with compassion, I looked at people dwelling in the ditch with, why can't they get their lives together? Fair? Why can't they just snap out of it? Why don't you get a job? Why don't you stop the addiction? Why don't you just stick it out? There was no compassion. And I'm afraid I'm seeing this as a trend in modern church. And as we grow in our faith and as we stay around church people long enough, we get so focused on what God has done in our hearts and lives, we forget the whole neighbor thing. Forget the whole responsibility for those people still dwelling in ditches. Especially in our culture, we we can make the entire Samaritan story about ourselves. And we can be so self-centered in our renovations that we forget or ignore what Jesus said to the religious leader after telling his story. What he said to the religious leader was, you now go and do the same thing. You now go and do what the one who showed mercy did. You now go, Jewish leader, and be Samaritan. Be the good Samaritan. And I just wonder in church world if somewhere along the way we're losing sight of that role. So I had a couple of takeaways. I've had a couple of weeks out to speak. I've been traveling, all kinds of stuff. So I've been thinking about this. And one of the things that I think that set this whole thing apart for the Samaritan is the Samaritan approached this scenario with a very prepared heart. It didn't surprise him. It wasn't like he wasn't ready. His heart was in such a place that God knew he could entrust him with this act of compassion. And the Samaritan could have had a cynical heart. Oh, he's a Jew. Forget it. Samaritan could have had kind of a jaded heart or a bitter heart, and nobody would have blamed him. And you know what? The exact same thing's happening in our culture. 
Oh, we got these people over here and they're hurting. And you're like, well, you can't fix everything. Let's just hope they get out. Oh, these people over here, they're so... But Tom, if you get involved in that, you know, it could mess your life up. Ah, good point. And you all would let me get away with it. You would give me a pass and I would give you a pass. But our hearts aren't prepared. This dude's heart was moved to compassion. So I'm going to allow you to sort of process this just for yourself on your own, for for you individually. But what I want to do is kind of give you a precursor about what's going to happen tonight at Core Night. Because Core Night is this moment where I get to kind of just share with you what's in my heart. It may not even happen. Core Night will, but what's in my heart may not even happen. But I just kind of like to share, here's the things I dream about these days. And the staff will come up and they'll share about all the things they've worked on and are doing and the successes and failures. And it's a family night. And then I'll just sit down here and share with you kind of what I've been thinking. So I'll give you some of that. And and I'll just kind of give you a precursor. What if we lifted the Samaritan to something a little higher than individual and made it about our community? So let me ask it this way. Are we ready as a live, as a church to care for people in the ditch? Do we even care that there are people in the ditch still? And then are we willing to sacrifice for the people in the ditch, even if it means we're going to have to go, it's going to have to go out of our way for that to actually happen? This church was founded, and we started a tremendous growth movement happened 15 years ago when we realized there were 96,000 people in our community who were not believers. 96,000 just in this county. And when we realized that, we said, we've dropped the ball. It's not the Ruritans. It's not the Lions Club. All these things are great things, but none of them are going to actually help resolve this situation. Only the church, but only if we have a prepared heart and care for people in the ditch. Are we willing to do that? Because here's the reality. We live in communities of people Lying in ditches. They're in your neighborhood. You passed them on the way here. They will wait on you at lunch today. People lying in ditches all over the place. We have addicts that are struggling to survive and find a way out. And they're so discouraged and so defeated because everything they have tried has not worked. And they're not sure they can get the courage and the gumption to try one more thing. And they're lying in a ditch in close proximity to you and me. We have folks that have huge aches in their hearts because of a love that broke or a love that did not last. They made a covenant forever. That covenant wasn't forever. It got betrayed, and now they're lying in a ditch split wide open because of of a betrayal. Had a prayer in between service with a guy who came up and said, Tom, that's me. I had that happen. They're lying in the ditch, and we go by them every day. We drive by them all the time. We have people who are at a place sexually that they never thought they would be. They've experimented. They've had multiple partners. They're trying multiple expressions of their sexuality. They've tried everything except for a God-ordained kind of sexuality. And they're piling up shame, piling up regret, and they're hurting people they love intensely. And they're lying in a ditch. And you probably know them by their first name. We have people in our community who on the outside 
look amazing, like you people. You look great. You smell good. All Christianed up. You got the house and the car and the family, but inside you are wounded and rotting and you're lying in a ditch and your whole life is committed to image management so nobody finds out you're lying in a ditch, broken and wounded. Well, as a church, what I'm getting ready to say, it, 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 I don't even want to tell you this because what I know is it'll mean some of you will leave. And that's hard on a pastor. But I feel I've got to be honest. As a church, we need to boldly reach out to those very people in the ditch. No apologies. Reckless, crazy, failure-risking, reaching out to people in the ditch. And what we want to do as a church is we want to provide these life-saving stations beyond this point of worship, and we want to spread it into other communities. And God is opening doors. I cannot wait to tell you tonight what's going on. But if we, if we could get, if we could just vote in this room, let's say, and let's say you had a vote, I had a vote. And what if we could get 10 families, just 10, 10 families. You could even pick them. Your friends and neighbors and families. Let's say we could get 10 families. Would it be worth it to do some kind of expression and risk adventure to reach those 10 families? Because Jesus said in his mathematical situation, in God economy, Jesus said this, I'll leave all you good people at alive, all y'all, to go get that one that's still stuck in the ditch. That's what he said. He's, not gonna, he's gonna come back to us. Don't worry about that. But he, he doesn't want to leave one. What would it look like for us to do that? Not only did he have a prepared heart, but the Samaritan was also living in proximity. He was walking on a very dangerous road he had no business being on in Jesus' story. What if we started to place ourselves in proximity to those people? Campuses or plants or microchurch or microsites or whatever. I don't think we have the whole list. But my basic thing is this. What if we started to set up shop on the edge of the ditches, kind of like Dollar Generals? <laughs> you know, they're everywhere. <laughs> what, if we, what if we tried to set up something like that? I'll tell you this one thing, but don't tell anyone else. So... You can tell tonight, but not now. But anyway, so every year, our church sets aside 150000 bucks out of tithe and offering. Nothing, you don't have to give anything more. We set it aside every year, and we have for the last three years. And what our plan is is this. We're developing a strategy to be able to create those sites, campuses, plants, microchurches, microsites, whatever they are, right on the edge of ditches for people to come to. And we're doing that. And we're sacrificing for that. And in an age in which we're taught to make this whole thing bigger and bigger and bigger, we're saying we're going out and out and out. And some of you are going to be excited about that. Some of you are going to think, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Teresa of Avila was a Spanish Jewish woman who became a Roman Catholic and lived as a nun. As soon as I read that about her, I said, I want to know everything she's ever written. 
And she wrote these words. She said, when one reaches the highest level of maturity, one has only one question left. How can I help? Faith is no... (laughs) Faith is no longer about what God can do for me, how God can help my family, how God can repair my marriage. All those things have value. But as we grow in our faith or what that identity looks like, as we grow and the renovation and demolition occurs over and over, we get to the point of our lives where we say, you know what, Lord? With whatever I've got left, I want to help. I want to help. And so I want to set up this site right here on the edge of this ditch and drag their sorry rear ends out of those ditches and put them up here because that's exactly where mine was and introduce them to the saving love of Jesus Christ. So I have two prayers for you to consider. God, reveal what is scary or what I would rather not deal with in me. And here's the second one. Open my eyes to those in proximity of me. I, I, I couldn't figure out how to end this. So what I want to do is I just want to read a passage of Scripture over you. And um, we've done this a couple times now, and, and I just feel like it's the best way. So I want to invite you to bow your head. Now, just for clarity... Um, this isn't like bow your heads, all hands raised, that kind of thing. And I'm not going to do anything weird. The reason I, I encourage you to bow your head is just so you won't be distracted. And just allow the word of God to sort of wash over you, and then I'll pray. So if you would, if you're comfortable, just bow your head with me. This is Ephesians 2. As for you good folks at Alive, you remember that you were dead in your transgressions and sin. You remember in which you used to live in those sin when you followed the ways of this world and the the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient, you remember being in the ditch. All of us also lived among them at one time. We were all in the ditch, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest of people in the ditch, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But only because of Of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were still dead in our sin. It was by grace we were drawn out of the ditch. It was by grace we were saved. And God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake and never forget, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This isn't something you did on your own. It was God's gift to you. Not because you worked and acted good. This isn't something we can boast about. For we, we, all of us even in the ditch and all of us out of the ditch, we are all God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for all of us to do. So God, I ask by the power of your spirit that you would affirm 
this heartbeat in the heartbeat of your church. I pray that right now you would raise up people listening to the sound of my voice even. I got to set up shop on the edge of a ditch for someone. I want to be part of that reach out. I want to be part of that, that plant, that campus, that microsite. I want to be part. I want to start in my neighborhood. I just have people come into my house and we'll start, start it. I don't know what it looks like. We'll just start. And I pray that that spirit would permeate. I pray that you would raise it up, Lord, in a mighty way that we would start training our people to be good Samaritans. We would start courageously taking steps of risk in order that some might get out of the ditch like we did. And I pray that it would start a mighty move and we would have so much, so many people that have lived a victorious life, so many people that have been renovated because of the process that, that we would know what to do. But your spirit would lead and your spirit would charge. So Lord, don't let anybody walk out of here without a little conversation with you. How do you want to use me? You know what? Some of you got one foot in the ditch and one foot out. And God still wants to use you. Prepared heart, proximity. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. In your name, amen.